You've been looking pretty good these last few weeks, man. Yeah, I got a, a secret stash of the stuff in the mail. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got the Caldera Lab stuff too, huh? I did get it. Dude, this is some great stuff, man. It's a three product regimen. Um, you can go to their website and check the, uh, the third party results yourself. You don't have to believe Ray or I, but we've both been using it. It's great stuff. The three product regimen of the good, the base layer, and the clean slate. People who have used it are experiencing smoother and healthier looking skin. It's really great stuff. Go over to calderalab.com and use promo code deluxe for 20% off. This is a great deal, Ray. Yeah. Look good, feel good, live good. That's what I always say. Absolutely. Calderalab.com. Use promo code deluxe for 20% off of your entire order. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer, joined, as always, with the artist formerly known as the Ten Cent Beer Knight, L. Ray Sexton. What's going on, Casey? Not too much, buddy. How are you? Oh, I'm having a great day. Yeah, man. We we just had another incredible interview. Mm-hmm. Tell Tell the folks who we just talked to. We just talked to Harry Walker, who is one of the most upbeat people I think I've ever met in my entire life. Yeah, this guy is not only upbeat, but he is a member of the United States National Guard Special Forces. He's a wildland firefighter and a strong man, just to name a few. I mean, he's done some other things, too, that we talked about. Um, Just an incredible human being. And we're going to get into the interview right after these quick plugs. We are a part of the Deluxe Edition Network. You can find all the other great shows on the network at deluxeeditionnetwork.com. And I think the podcasts of the month are Hilf and Barrel Aged Flicks if this comes out in April. If this comes out in May, they are The Real Drunks and Horsing Around. Uh, let's see if you'd like to find any of our previous shows. If you really like this interview with Harry, go check out some of our other shows over at deluxe show. And that's it. That's all I'm going to say. Here's our interview with Harry. All the links will be in the show notes. Check them out. Here it is. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no problem, man. 
So uh, before we get started here, I want to show a video to uh, to our viewers. Um, we're not live or anything, so this is all everything's edited. Um, but I want to show how I got my introduction here to uh, Harry Walker, and then uh, and then we'll get into the interview. We're all going to be muted while this uh, video plays. It's uh, one minute long, so um, here it is. <laughs> didn't quite get the 400 pounder but holy shit man yeah that was uh that was a that was a really cool moment for me because i hadn't really had an opportunity to to train stones for a while before that um so that was to to get that i think it was a 350 the one before that last one and even to break the four off the ground was like a big moment for me because you know like i said i hadn't hadn't really been training it so it was uh it got me like really excited about stones again which was cool so you say you couldn't train for that how do you even train for something like that to pick up a 400 pound stone uh well yeah i mean brett the guy who who kind of put that show on be the guy to ask because he's he's done some crazy weights with stones but um you know we had access to or i did um stones about like 250 at my gym but i didn't have like a platform or anything and just because of my work schedule and my other competition schedule stuff i wasn't really focusing on them but uh if i did really want to train seriously um for a heavy stone like that i'd you know travel around a little bit to kind of get my hands on a heavier one and if i couldn't do that then i would just uh do a lot of like posture chain work um as much as I could to kind of to replicate some of that stuff, but they're so specific, you know, trying to get heavy on those stones. So that was my introduction to Harry Walker. And I was like, after that, it was, that was at the Tallahassee Highland games. Yeah. Back in March. Uh, I think, and I think it was, I think, I was, it, was, uh, I think it was like, uh, mid February. Oh, it was because, um, I write like pretty shortly after that is when I I went to um, Arnold's strength expo in in Columbus, Ohio to compete. And so, you know, and I'd had that conversation with myself. I was like, Oh, should I even, you know, should I do this competition this close to the Arnold? And uh, I'm really glad I did because it was um, kind of my introduction to uh, a few more like really great people in the the Florida strength scene. And uh, that, competition is is almost the same as the one i'm going to go do in um in norway in july so i'm, I'm really glad it was a really really great experience i'm glad you came down to tallahassee to do it too man because i probably wouldn't have ever heard about you yeah. otherwise but after that like just after that one day of competition i was like i want to have this guy on, on the podcast i want to talk to him 
And then after you agreed to do it, I started doing my research and I was like, holy shit, like this guy is not just a strong man. Like, dude, you have an incredible story, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been very fortunate to um, have done like a lot of interesting things. And uh, yeah, I, I count myself very lucky and blessed. I don't know like which things you want me to go into because it, you know, <laughs> a while, but um, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of like, I, th- I feel like the, the strength stuff I do has also been pretty um, married to kind of like the occupations I had. Um, you know, before I joined the Marine Corps and I joined the military, I was I was going to school in Boston and I worked pretty much um, as a bouncer in, in the entirety of college. And then I joined the Marine Corps and uh, I was doing a lot of strongman stuff to kind of like support uh, what I thought was good carryover to the job. I was, I was in the infantry. And so like, you know, picking guys up, moving guys, picking up weird stuff. Um, just, it was just important for me to be, to be strong. And then, you know, stopped doing that and really started competing a lot more because I officially started competing in, in 2018. Uh, and I definitely like filled the, the void of getting out of the Marine Corps uh, with like a ton of competing. Like I think I did one, I think I did 13 shows in one year, the Damn. year after I got out. So I was definitely filling like a gap there. And then, uh, yeah, I did, uh, I did some work in Africa for a little bit. I was, I was doing some anti-poaching and conservation work and, you know, making do with, with rocks and stuff out there as a way. <laughs> so there's always been kind of this, uh, this relationship between like the jobs I'm doing and like the strongman stuff, which has been really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's go back to the beginning. You, you grew up in Maine, right? Yeah. So sort of, I grew up the first five years of my life in New York. I was born in New York. And then when I was young, my parents split and I kind of bounced around Massachusetts a lot. And then in the summers I would go up to Maine uh, because my family had a a place up there and which was amazing. Uh, to get to spend time up there out in nature all the time. And then um, high school and college in Boston. And then from there, just all over the place. So what made you decide to join the Marine Corps then? Um, like, so you, you went to, what, so what did you go to college? You were, you were headed through college, right? You went to college? Yeah, I, I uh, went to Boston University and I did, the Marine ROTC there. So I, I studied health sciences at Boston university and then I, I commissioned as uh, an officer in the Marine Corps. Um, but when I made the decision to join, I was in high school and uh, I was pretty influenced um, by my, my dad, my dad like grew up really poor in, uh, in England. Uh, and he's, he's a bit older. He's like 83 now. So, to put it in perspective, when he was really young, Birmingham, you know, where he lived in England, was getting bombed by the Germans in World War II. Uh, so that was happening. So he he came from like being kind of dirt poor and, and really, you know, made a name for himself, um, just working hard. He became a really successful artist, and you know, because of that, um, he was able to provide a pretty good life. I felt for me. So I was just kind of looking at. Um, my life and then the things I wanted to do after, after high school. And, uh, I just kind of decided that I wanted some, some like hardship in my life. Um, 
and uh and i wanted to give back you know the uh you know a sense of uh service has always been really strong in me and that's kind of when it started uh so i kind of was looking around to see you know what would provide that outlet for me i wanted something that was that was mentally challenging but physically challenging as well and i settled on the marine corps because you know they they do some great uh advertising about you know giving you kind of like a, a hard life and a hard experience um and so that's how i made that that initial decision to join damn man like my dad was in the marine corps and i never had any desire to join the marine corps i was like i want to be as far away from that as possible so like i, more I probably, power probably, me, man. Same, I probably have been the same way if my dad was in the marine corps yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for your service, though, man. It's uh, incredible. Like, so what? What does you say commissioned as a second lieutenant? What does that mean? Because we're not military guys. Yeah. So, um, in order to become uh, an officer in the military, you have to have a degree uh, of some sort. And so, when you the difference between enlisting and commissioning is it's the the degree is not a, a prerequisite for enlisting. Um, and I, I almost did enlist actually. And the only reason I didn't, uh, cause I went to the recruiter and I left the recruiter and I called my dad and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to enlist in the Marine Corps. Cause it's kind of at like, um, this is about 2009. So it's global war on terror was, you know, wasn't over yet, but there's still a lot going on. Uh, and I wanted to be a part of it. So I called my dad and told him I was going to do that. And he was a professor at Boston university, he basically told me I was stupid. If I did that, uh, I would get a free education since he was a, a professor there. And then I later went on to get the, the scholarship, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of, I had my heart set on it until he, you know, told me to consider some other options, but yeah, commissioning just means you go as you go in as an officer. So that's, that's what I did. And it's an, it's definitely an interesting system because you're putting, basically very young guys, kids uh, in their young twenties in charge of, you know, seasoned guys, seasoned men who have, you know, may or may not have a lot of experience. Definitely. You're usually, you're paired up with like a, they're called a, a, a staff non-commissioned officer, a staff NCO. And these are Marines, you know, guys who have had a lot of experience in the Marine Corps and they are like there to be your, almost like your enlisted mentor and advisor to kind of, you know, balance out, you know, this energetic uh, young officer who shows up, you know, you have like a, a good staff NCO who, who shows you kind of the do's and don'ts and, and how to interact, um, how to be in that leadership position, but also uh, how to do it the right way. It's amazing what you say about the young guys. Like I travel for work every week and a couple times I've been in and out of San Antonio and I guess I think that's where it is. And there's a, there's a big military base there. Right. Yeah, there is. And it was around the holidays the one time and the entire airport was filled with military. And I was just, I said to my girlfriend, like, I just can't believe how young some yeah. of these kids look, but like, you know, you think going back in, in history, that's always the way it's been. Right. Yeah. Always. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the decisions to do those kind of things are made you know, basically by old men. And then the people who, uh, pay for it are these young guys, uh, who are extremely patriotic and hardworking. Um, every generation is always going to criticize like the younger generation, but at least when I was in, like my Marines were tough as nails. I mean, 
some of them come from some really hard um, backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I think that that criticism is always going to exist. But I, the, the guys who join, you know, especially uh, combat arms and who want to go to the infantry, like they're, they're tough guys, they're tough kids. It doesn't matter, you know, what generation they're from. There's always going to be um, kind of that warrior mentality. But, yeah, they're young, they're crazy young. So, like, when you were a kid, were you a thrill seeker? Like, did you – because you went – you wanted to go into the infantry, like you just said, like you um, – No, I was – I was uh, I was like a sensitive kid, man. I uh, – you know, my dad was an artist, and I spent a lot of time, like, in the studio with him, like, drawing and, and painting and, and reading. Um, so I, I always uh, felt like, I, you know, I was kind of like a softy, like a sensitive kid. And then uh, – I think I might've like taken that to heart or something. Cause I, you know, I, I started playing rugby in high school and uh, I realized I needed to, to get uh, bigger and stronger and more aggressive. So I started training like my freshman summer of high school. And then I, I started noticing like what the weight room could do for me performance wise playing rugby. Cause I played rugby in total for about 12 years. Um, and it, it did everything for me. I mean, like it made me confident. It like made me more outgoing. Um, so yeah, like the, that's kind of when like the iron bug bit me was in, was in high school and seeing not only what it could do for me athletically, but like just for my personality, you know what I mean? Yeah. So how long did you spend in the Marine Corps then? I was in the Marine Corps for four years. I was out, uh, I was stationed out in Hawaii and we did two, um, deployments out to the South Pacific. So working with, partner forces in um japan and korea um and then i got out in, in 2018 and then you know did some other stuff and and now i'm back uh in the military just on the the guard side yeah we're gonna we're gonna get into all that so after the marine corps you you had a void you said in your life so what <laughs> what took you to south africa like what how did you get to south africa for yeah. the vet ball right anti-poaching unit Right. Yeah. That was, that was a great experience. Um, my friend Pete from the Marine Corps, he had a connection, uh, with that paw and, you know, I was, I was fresh out of the Marine Corps and I was kind of, you know, really figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, he was posting all these crazy pictures and videos on his Instagram you know, with all these African animals and like, it seemed like, you know, he was doing all this great stuff. Um, and just on a whim, I kind of shot a message. I was like, what are you doing right now? Where are you? <laughs> you know, like what's going on. And, uh, cause I was like, cause I'm, I'm super interested. Uh, you know, I, how do I do it? And just as like fate would have it, they were short staffed at that time. And usually they, they make, they, at that time they were making their guys go through like a screener and all this good stuff. And because Pete and I had been in the same unit, he was like, yeah, man, you're good. I can personally vouch for you. There's a full moon coming up, which is like a really dangerous time for the rhino because it's provides a lot of visibility at night for poachers. He's like, you know, we're short on guys. Can you be out here in like, yeah, he's like, can you be out here in two weeks? So, <laughs> Uh, with two, two week notice, I was like, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, tell me, you know what I need to pack and, uh, you know, how long do you need me out for? And he's like, ah, like, you know, six weeks, eight weeks. And I was like, yeah, I'll be there. Just, you know, tell me what to do. So I showed up and then, uh, that initial one, I went for about six, seven weeks and then came back for a little bit. And then I went out for three months. 
Um, and I had a great time out there working uh, with all the guys on the team level and the locals and just learning a ton. It was a great experience. So when you – like, did you think that you were going to, like, physically, like, get into, like, firefights with dudes yeah. and shit? Like, Yeah, that's what I was, that's what I was expecting. That was, that's what I, I mentally prepared for, and I was totally – ready and willing to do all that. Um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't as kinetic as I thought it was going to be. It, it, it ended up being a lot more uh, on like the com- on conservation side. So like taking care of the animals, making sure the security perimeter was all set. Um, yeah. But in my mind, I was like fully engaged to go out and you know, get after and get into firefights with poachers and all that. So did you ever, I mean, you were there for quite a while. Did you ever encounter anything like, like that or? Yeah. So there was, um, it was actually separate from vet paw. I went, uh, kind of on my own accord to do some training with, um, his name's Colin Patrick and he's kind of like the leading authority in, uh, anti-poaching out in South Africa and really over that part of Africa. And, uh, he was running a man tracking course. So I went out and I, uh, I got certified to be a man tracker, which is a, a funny title, but you know, I did this training with him and he had his, he was working on a reserve out there and then there was a neighboring reserve. And I met a friend who was working there who, who was the head of the anti-poaching unit there. And he basically invited me to stay, you know, for uh, about a week before I went off to one of the vet pot reserves I was working at. And while I was there, sure enough, there was a, there was a poaching incursion. Um, you know, his guys had, had, uh, been doing a patrol and they found it's called spore or it's like tracks of poachers, you know, encroaching into the, into the reserve. This is, this is like midnight or something. And yeah, like alarm goes up and, uh, you know, we all activated. Um, I was in one of the chase vehicles for a little bit and then I was, I'm on like one of the, the foot units and we were checking, you know, where the tracks were, where the spore was. Um, and it turns out we were able to, uh, we didn't actually get the guys that night, but after looking at the tracks, what happens is we realized they, they, they heard us and they saw us. So they, they had to divert and leave the property. So, um, thankfully it meant that a rhino didn't get poached, you know, that night, which was, which was great. But, uh, you know, sadly on that same reserve, you know, later on my friend, you know, he sent me some, some pictures and videos and, you know, they, a couple rhinos did get hit on his reserve. Cause it's, it's like a, it's a constant battle out there. And, and honestly, uh, all the advantages are, um, like the poachers have all the advantages in terms of like, they choose where they go, you know, when they go. And they're also extremely like skilled and proficient. These guys are, I mean, they're locals, you know, they're indigenous to the area or areas very similar. Um, you know, there's, there's been cases where it's, it's guys who have actually maybe worked on the reserve before. So they kind of know where the animals congregate or, or whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, they're, you know, they're professional criminals. It's not just, uh, it's not like amateur criminal stuff. There's, I mean, there's levels of it, but you know, they're very, they're very skilled, uh, and they know what they're doing. So it's, it, it can be a, it's a very difficult problem, you know, for uh, reserve owners out there and for the national parks. So when you say a reserve too, you're not talking about like a city block. These are, I mean, it, they're huge, huge, yeah. huge areas, right? Yeah. Hundreds of acres, you know, thousands. Yeah. Of acres. 
So, I mean, to, to have, I mean, how big are these units? I mean, there can't be enough men to cover that entire area. No, it's, it's completely uh, short staffed. And I mean, to either the amount of manpower or technology costs that it would take to, to fully like surveil um, or survey, whatever the word is, uh, those areas would be incredible. I mean, so this, the system that a lot of them have in place is, uh, you know, it'll be fenced and then there will along those, those fenced areas or, or somewhere on the entire perimeter, they'll basically have graded roads and depending on in the area where it is, it's usually pretty kind of like soft, sandy in, in those parts of South Africa. It's, it's very easy to tell if there's been tracks or prints, right? And so you'll have uh, periodic patrols of these areas, either foot or mobile, where you're kind of checking for detection. Um, so it's a, in a way, it's like a rudimentary surveillance system, but it's also very effective, you know, to a point, depending on how effective the roads are. But, you know, there's also poachers who are incredibly uh, intelligent at ways to evade those kind of things. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult problem set for sure. Are they, like, taking the entire rhino out of there or just, like, the horns for the most part? Because that seems, like, incredibly difficult to get a rhino off the reservation without being detected. Yeah, no, it's, you're, you're correct. It's just the, it's just the horn. And that's, that's, you know, one of the terrible parts about it is they'll, they'll shoot the rhino. Sometimes the rhino won't even be completely dead and they'll cut the horn or actually they'll cut in to get as much of the horn as they can, which is awful. So they're butchering this animal and then they're not, not that I would want them to use it anyway, but it's, it's not like other things where, someone's using every part of the animal they're only butchering it for this one part and uh the rhino horn is it's keratin so it's the same thing as what our fingernails are made out of so it's completely useless in any medicinal sense the reason that they're doing this same thing with the the elephant ivory is uh it's extremely popular in asia for like traditional remedies it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac it's supposed to use be used as like erectile dysfunction medicine, like all these things that's, it's not actually doing, you know, it's, it's all kind of like superstition. Um, so the market for it, it all gets exported illegally out of Mozambique, uh, to, you know, mostly China. So it's, it's a, it's a black market trade and it's, you know, it's awful because it doesn't actually do anything. It's, you know, purely fueled by, you know, greed and, uh, superstition and, uh, a lot of that money, because they're professional criminals, a lot of it can actually go into funding on terrorism and uh, terrorist groups out there. So that's, you know, kind of a double whammy. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah. it's. No, pretty- I didn't even think of that. Like, well, I didn't even think about what, what Ray said about the them just taking that. So they're that's horrible, man. Yeah, it's awful when you actually see, I mean, if you just Google search, it's, it's awful to actually see, like, the aftermath of a rhino being poached. Um because sometimes they'll be pregnant too. And then obviously the calf dies as well. And it's just these, these rhinos, you know, they're usually uh, laying, laying down or laying on their side and their whole face has been cut apart. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're still alive. Uh, I actually think a couple have been, have been saved in the sense that like their horns were cut off and they were able to save the rhino's life. But it's, that's really rare. Um, but yeah, they're just being butchered for no reason. It's a, it's 
a, it's an awful, awful thing. That's why it feels good to, to be out there and helping protect them. And, um, you know, the, the, the real guys out there doing it are the, you know, the South African natives themselves, like my friend and his anti-poaching unit, because, you know, for, for me and for a lot of guys who get to go out once or twice, it's, it's great. Um, and it is like, you know, I, I, I hope to go back someday and do it more. Um, but those guys are, that's their life. You know, they're living out there and they're doing it every day and for years on end. So they're so invested and, you know, they get these, these small wins, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's like an eternal kind of struggle against these, these people. So it's, it's tough, you know? So when you're out there for, you said you were there for three months at one point, right? Yeah. Like what, what is the living situation? Like you're, are you sleeping in like a, a like a separate tent every night or is there like, no. is it similar to like your military? Yeah. So we had a, we had like a team house. Um, and it would, honestly, some of the places I stayed over there have been nicer than some of the apartments, <laughs> yeah. especially cause like the scenery and like the environment. Uh, but, uh, no, by no means was I like roughing it really. Like I, I expected it to be a hundred percent. Uh, you know, I thought I was going to be, you know, living out of like a sleeping bag and a tent. Um, and when I got there, I was, I was very pleasantly surprised. Uh, not to say that there weren't issues. I mean, like sometimes like electricity or water, we wouldn't have, it would just shut off, whatever. But, you know, my experience in the military, like more than prepared me for, for having to do stuff out there, which was great. Yeah. Uh, a couple more questions about that before we move on to the re- rest of the crazy shit that you've done. Yeah. Um, so are, are they only, what else are they poaching or where are they strictly rhinos or? So it's, it's mostly rhino and elephant. And then there's, there's something else it's called like um, game poaching or game meat poaching. And that's basically, you know, usually like the antelope, subspecies that are out there because there's a lot of those kind of things on, on game reserves and otherwise national park. And that's uh, that, that's kind of where the, the criminal element can range a lot uh, in the sense that, you know, that could be being done by very poor villagers who live in the local area and they're, you know, trying to get some food for the family or it could be, you know, little bit better criminals who are just doing it so they can sell it like the local market. Um, so game meat poaching is, it's still illegal. Um, you know, I think the necessity of it varies, uh, a lot. There's some people who are just criminals who are just doing it to make a, a business out of it. And then, you know, there's nothing to say that it also can't be someone who doesn't have, you know, the economic means, um, to get food. Uh, so in my mind, like, and I could be totally off base on this because, you know, I also don't live in South Africa. So my exposure is, is very different, but uh, in my mind, like that stuff wasn't as bad as, as the, the poaching um, for rhino and elephant, you know? Sure. So you said, you mentioned man tracking. Yeah. T- tell us about that, man. Cause I, I, I listened to another podcast that you were on uh, one of your military buddies and, like this this is this is crazy shit the band tracking and like the you know possibly confronting an elephant in the middle of the night on the trail right like yeah so uh 
so yeah, the uh, the man tracking part for me was pretty like straightforward and easy actually because a lot of it involved you know like small unit tactics and how to work within a group you know while you're on tracks. But the part the, the steepest learning curve that I have when I got out there was um, learning how to read and interact uh, with the wildlife. And so that's why this guy Colin Patrick is is such an amazing guy because he's been on it's called hot tracks when you're you know in active pursuit of someone. So he uses a, a tracking dog. Um, they use Malinois, which are great, great uh, working dogs. Uh, but you know he's been in several situations where they're on hot tracks. They you know, in the middle of the night, uh, and because you know they're native to the area, they understand so well. They they're in a situation where they're they're coming across a dangerous animal, be it an elephant, be it um, the Cape Buffalo are extremely dangerous. And then depending on what type of animal it is, having to make the decision like, okay, am I going to like confront and like try and like scare this animal or move this animal out of my way? Or do I have to take the time to like come off the track and like circumnavigate around this, this issue. So that's where, you know, guys like me are, were kind of in the dark and I had to learn a lot of stuff really quickly. So, you know, it wasn't a liability because, you know, how am I going to, I'm no, I'm no use to getting after a poacher. If I find myself interacting with an animal, I don't have know how to interact with. Um, so that's where I think, you know, if anyone's interested in doing any of this stuff, uh, that's the thing you got to realize it's no matter what your military background is, you're going to have to learn a tremendous amount of knowledge about, like the local terrain and the animals and how to, you know, interact with them. Um, you know, being able to read an elephant's mock charge versus a real charge, you know, like an elephant's going to put its ears out real big if it wants to intimidate you and scare you. Um, but you know, the moment it puts those back and puts its head down and comes at you, like it's, it's, it's going to, it's going to kill you. You know what I mean? So there's, there's videos you can watch, of elements like the, the guides in the Kruger, just the walking guides who like tour people around. They're amazing. Cause you'll see these massive elephants come out and you know, they're right in front of them, like 20 feet away. And the person just makes themselves look as big as they can. They'll yell and like, <laughs> they'll, they'll scare an elephant away, which and they stand stock still, you know, while this thing's coming at them. So that, that's like incredible to me. Um, and it's just cause oh, they yeah. know, yeah, it's not. It's because they know how to read the animals, and they've received some some excellent training. And, you know, they do carry uh, a rifle for if they do have to um, defend themselves with a guest. But you know, they they've received so much excellent training, so they know how to do all that stuff. And um, I was, you know, completely ignorant to all that my first time going out. And you know, I very quickly realized I had to you know, take my education in my own hands if I wanted to be effective out there. Did you ever encounter anything like that? Like anything like a, a scary animal like that? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a couple angry elephants on one of the herbs <laughs> I worked on. One was uh, a broken tusk and he was, he was known for like chasing down vehicles. Um, a lot of the, so we did a lot of mounted operations, meaning we would, you know, use the, the vehicles pretty, pretty heavily and then we would dismount to go on kind of walking patrols of you know perimeter areas or um night patrols um but you always had in mind like how far away you were from a vehicle 
And then if I was walking somewhere, because the most dangerous things are probably like Cape Buffalo, black rhino, elephant. Um, and so especially for the, the Cape Buffalo and the rhino, I would always have my eyes out for like uh, a tree or something that I, I, the next piece of terrain I could get to and get up if I needed to. Um, elephant, you know, <laughs> it's not going to help you too much, but you can usually hear them from like a pretty good distance away. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the, there's like a night patrol we went on one time and when we were walking back, uh, on our tracks, we saw, uh, fresh leopard tracks, uh, which means one was stalking us, uh, and they're ambush, they're ambush predators too. So that was like kind of a wake up call. Cause, uh, you realize, you really do realize how like insignificant you are and how like low on the food chain you really are when you're out there, um, with those animals and, you know, Thankfully, mankind invented, you know, firearms. I can only imagine what it was like, you know, for our species before we had the the advantage of all that stuff. Now, I imagine it's like a lot of this in the middle of the night, too, right? Yep. Yeah. Fuck that, man. You're (laughs) (laughs) amazing, man. uh, There's a saying, uh, you know, that we have in like different parts of the military. It's always like we own the night. And uh, yeah, we did not own the night out there <laughs> at all. <laughs> oh man, that's that's intense shit, man. So like I, thinking about it, it it's it's got to be even harder for the units on these reserves because there are so many different animals that the people are trying to come in and poach too. Because there there's on these the places that these units that you you were working for there they're all protected reserves, right? There's no legal yeah. hunting, right? Right. That's, that's correct. So the only legal um, hunting you can do on those is if, because uh, game reserves are essentially, they're, they're incredibly important to the ecosystem because they, they balance and they preserve, you know, all these keystone species, but a game preserve allows people to, to come onto it and, you know, hunt, um, some of the animals, they don't allow the hunting of like the rhino or the elephant or any of that stuff. Um, and that's actually, it's, it's one of the major pieces of the South African economy. Cause a lot of almost all of the land out there is privatized ex- except for, I think like the national park, it's a little bit different how that's done. And there's no hunting on the national parks. The Kruger is what it's called. So no, there's no, there's no, uh, illegal, uh, hunting. It's not, it's not like in America where there's, there's areas of public land where anyone can just go and hunt. Um, that doesn't really exist in South Africa. So it's the whole ecological setup is, is very different. And the whole hunting setup is very different than what we have in America. When they are coming on to these preserves to hunt legally, they're, they're paid hunts, right? They're, they're coming in and paying to now will. So that's another thing. Will, Will poachers pose as no. people and bring other people on to, to like say that they're doing a legal hunt? No, uh, there's kind of like, at least to my understanding, um, I, you know, I, I haven't ever been in the situation where I, I didn't work for those reserves in that regard. I just, I was just security, but no, it's pretty, there's a pretty intense like vetting process and there's an initial exchange of, of money and like all of these things. And uh, yeah, the poachers, they're, they're not able to present themselves in that legitimate of a way. Okay, man. 
amazing. Like I said, fuck that, but like, dude, like uh, more power to you, man, because that that it's incredible shit what what they're doing over there. It's a really cool experience. I think um, you know if anyone, uh, obviously, Vet Paw is, is the organization I worked through, but there's there's a lot of other ones out there. Um, anyone who hears this, if you're a military veteran or otherwise, if you're interested in doing it, just you can just privately message me and we can talk about it. Awesome. So you leave South Africa and you come back and you're, you're going to have to explain this because I, I don't know what this means. You, is it decommissioned your status in the Marine Corps? Yeah, I resigned my commission. Um, what, so what does that mean? That means, and this is not like a common thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was, yeah. So, I mean, I left the Marine Corps for a few reasons, but uh, one of the reasons being, so the, the special operations branch of the Marine Corps is called MARSOC. And um, to my understanding at the time, I would not have been able to resign my commission and uh, join MARSOC. I also wasn't interested in doing so as a captain, which I got out at because you get like two years operational max as a team leader, as like an officer on the team. And, uh, you know, I felt, I felt like I'd already kind of played that game with the Marine Corps. Like I was in for four years and then my career progression as an officer, it was going to, my opinion, take me away from the things that I cared about, which was being at the small unit level, having Marines, you know, staying tactical and operational. Um, so when you, sorry, to cut you off but when you say having marines like you, you were in charge of like 40 yeah. guys right yeah i was a rifle platoon commander and then a weapons platoon commander and in each platoon i had about 40 guys uh so i was the i was the leader or you know the, the officer and then i also had a platoon sergeant and then i had uh, a rifle platoon i had three squad leaders and my weapons platoon i had uh three section leaders uh so that's yeah that's kind of how that works so you, so you leave the Marine Corps, decommission your status, and you join the Army National Guard yep. so you can become a special forces, right? That's right. And uh, I had made that decision actually uh, after my first deployment in the Marine Corps, just kind of like seeing what the Marine Corps was doing and what other opportunities were out there. And I'd done a, a ton of research. and I talked to a lot of people. Um, to kind of see what the best opportunities were. And, and that's honestly like national guard special forces is it's very commonly referred to as like the army's best kept secret because it enables you to uh, be a special forces operator and um, have a civilian career at the same time, which is, it can be really, it's, it is really difficult to balance both those things, but it's also incredibly rewarding and it provided um, provides a lot more flexibility, which was something that was appealing to me. Um, I love the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps is not very flexible uh, as an active duty Marine. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was among some of the factors that made me make that choice. And I, I felt like I had played the timing game in the Marine Corps, and I didn't want to be constricted by a timeline again. Uh, and so that's why I chose to enlist and. Uh, it's been a great decision. I'm extremely happy with it. I'm having a great time. Um, so so yeah. it, it's a it's a long, a long, long process because the podcast that I listened to that you were on, I think, was like 
2020 and you're still going through the process of everything, right? So yeah, I, I went through, I'm done with all my training. So I'm officially, um, operational. I'm on a team now. Uh, but yeah, all in all the process took about for me and it was, it was a pretty quick process for me. Uh, but all in all, I'd say it was about, uh, 14, 15 months of, of training. Uh, and that's just because, you know, things like lined up pretty quickly. It can, it can take guys up to two years, if not a little bit more, depending on the job they get and, and other things. If, if they have to repeat anything, if they, if they like fail and recycle and have to do something again, um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, have passed everything the first time and, and gone straight through. So was it, you said it was a little quicker for you. Was that because you didn't have, like you weren't working another job or like you, you only had that to focus on or, uh, no, actually, actually, uh, so I'm, I'm just counting training time, uh, from when I started the process to when I actually finished was like, it, I hit some bumps. Uh, one being that the, the state, which has the initial, um, like screener to, to be accepted to the unit, which would then send you to the official screener. So there's like a pre-screener to the screener. Uh, they only ran at that event twice a year. And so I was getting ready and I injured my foot, which is obviously extremely important because there's tons of running and rucking like heavy pack on your back. Uh, so I had to make this really hard decision for me because you know, I got out of the Marine Corps knowing I was going to do this and, you know, I have this injury and that means I have to wait another six months before I can try out. So, uh, but I told myself, I was like, Hey, you're a hundred percent invested in this. Like you need to show up with your, you know, with your best performance. So I decided to delay it. Actually, I went to South Africa to work during one of those times. And, and while I was out there, I was, I was like running and, rucking like through all, all these reserves with all these dangerous animals, like super aware whenever I was running. Uh, but uh, then I came back, I took that screener. Uh, I got selected to go to the training team, which your sole job in the training team is to get ready for, it's called SFAS, Special Forces Assessment and Selection. So my only job was really just to, to work out and, and be ready, um, which I did. And that uh, I hit a, a little hiccup there because I was supposed to, you know, like attach to my new unit. And then the, the like electronic administrative system of the army, like lost me for uh, like three months. So I didn't exist. And I had to, I was calling him every week and I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm a real person. I swear I exist. No way to get attached here. Um, which was, which was rough, which was rough for me because like, you know, now this, this thing, which I thought was going to happen really quickly is now at like nine plus months, you know what I mean? And I'm still waiting. Uh, I mean, you know, small steps I was getting there, but it was you know really frustrating for me. Um, so that finally went through and then, uh, I had like an official date to go, um, down to SFAS. And then this is like right around the time COVID starts happening. So, so uh, you know, I get told like, hey, your date's been canceled. Like, we don't know what's going on with this COVID stuff. Like, you're just going to have to wait and see what happens, you know. And I'd, I'd been like 
bouncing around like around the world didn't have like a real job you know i've been working in like boston for a little bit at bars and i got back from africa and i was like i can't be around people <laughs> like <laughs> Like I'd just been, you know, living out in like in the bush and like, you know, with, you know, these great experiences and I come back to the concrete jungle. I'm like, oh, you know, F this. I was like, this, this is terrible. Um, so that's when I moved, you know, back up to Maine. I just wanted to be outside and kind of be alone and, and focusing on, you know, training and getting ready. Um, so, yeah, I get told like the COVID's kind of messed things up and you're just going to have to wait. And I'm like damn, you know, I, <laughs> here I am like living up in the woods. Like, I don't, I, you know, I had, I had war horse going on. So I was, I, you know, I had some income, but like, you know, I was really starting to like beat myself up. I was like, you know, what are you doing, man? Like you said, you're going to do this thing. It's not happening. So at that time I, uh, I had been doing some research um, because one of my Marines had gotten out and he became a wildland firefighter at West. And so I had looked up and researched all the military veteran wildland fire crews and I shot them all an email, <laughs> uh, all the ones for the Bureau of land management. I shot them all in emails, like 12 or 13 crews and Vegas Valley veterans called me back, uh, just did a phone interview with me and they offered me a job. Uh, fire season starts like in May. So I think this was about this is maybe maybe this was about like February uh, or March, and uh, I accepted. And then the next day, the army called me, and they said, uh, "Hey, we got you a date uh, for special force assessment selection." And they're like, "It's you know, they didn't know this, but they're like, it's two weeks after you start that fire job you just accepted yesterday." <laughs> so. So I, I, I'm like, great. Thank you so much. I'll be there. And so uh, I'll be ready. Cause you know, this is the thing I've been, I've been working towards for so long. So I immediately call my, my new boss up, my fire boss. And I was like, Hey, uh, I can be there for the first two weeks, which is criticals, which is when you do all your training and get your red card, which is like a certification. I was like, I can be there for criticals. And then I have to leave for like six weeks. <laughs> is that okay? And my boss was like, yeah, that's fine. I understand, you know, out of your control. He's like, you just have to promise that you're going to come back. Like you're not, you're not just going to go out there and, you know, do whatever. Like I need your promise. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I promise. So I went out there for fire season and, um, it actually worked out really well. Cause, uh, yeah, Vegas Valley, really good crew, uh, really in shape. And so I was out there, you know, running around hot ass desert and, and doing some really brutal hikes. And it actually helped me, uh, drop a little bit of weight. Not that I was fat, but drop a little bit of, like muscle weight and really, and like cut my run times and my hike down, my hike times down, which was perfect. Cause like two weeks later I leave, you know, I show up to SFAS, um, and like my run times, I'm just cruising. <laughs> so uh yeah and then you know i i attended selection i was there for about uh six weeks which is usually a little longer than usual but because of covid like we had to do a little bit extra time on the front end and the back end um thankfully we didn't have to wear masks the whole time but there's a couple like runs in the beginning well <laughs> it was like raining and i was just like <laughs> 
eating that mask. But, uh, that, so that was going to be one of my questions. The military did not shut down during COVID, right? They were still accepting people, right? The military was doing some really weird stuff during COVID. Uh, <laughs> like they were like locking people in their their barracks rooms and like hand delivering food to them. There's across the branches. There's a lot of nonsense going on, but. No, there was only a brief period where they uh, they weren't running those selections, and then pretty quickly they they started them up again because I mean, hey, the the military yeah. needs the military needs trained soldiers and Marines and whatever, so you know they'll they'll adapt. Yeah, especially the National Guard, which you were signing up for, right? Like, yep. To protect our country, I know you had to sign an NDA for the the special forces, like all the training and stuff. But now that that you've you've made it are you allowed to talk about any of the training that went on at all i can talk about certain parts of it i mean um there there is a lot of like pretty readily available information online what i won't do is i because <laughs> there's certain parts of it that like people just need to go if they're thinking of doing it they need to go and experience it for themselves and so i don't want to do a a disservice by like giving an unfair advantage to anyone by giving them some information but most of it is, is at SFAS is pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, there's like three phases. You're, there's a gate week, a land navigation week, and a team week. Um, and gate week is basically all your uh, graded physical events. Um, I can't tell. I can't tell people how. It also changes. Like no class is the same. It's a it's a really well run um, screener. Uh, it's like one of the more professional things I've done in my military career in terms of um, uh, like a selection process. Uh, so even if I were to, to give the, the numbers of the distances and stuff I did, it wouldn't matter because it wouldn't be the same for, for someone going it, you know, everything's variable and it changes, which is great. Um, but yeah, then there's like land navigation, which is, you know, straightforward doesn't doesn't matter. I, you know, I can't draw out the map, nor would I want to. You know, sure. just things, just things you're gonna have to learn about it when you get down there. <laughs> and then Team Week, I love Team Week. Team Week, it's like strongman marathon, man. I, <laughs> you know, you'll you'll hear some people they have horror stories about Team Week because you know, like, you know, maybe they just didn't have a strong team, or you know, they had a uh, a cadre member who wasn't so nice. <laughs> um, but uh, I felt like it was like my bread and butter. It was, you know, you you show up and you, you're in a team of guys and you got your rucks on and you're basically given a collection of items, very heavy items, uh, and things that you usually have to like strap together or build in some way, shape or form. And then you got to move that thing or carry that for an unknown distance for an unknown amount of time. And, you know, <laughs> You're going to be doing that for like four days. So just have fun. <laughs> you know, it, you know the, it pays to be a winner. That's all I'll say. Like the sooner you're done, you know, maybe you'll be the first team. Maybe you get, you know, three or four hours of sleep. And if you're the last team, maybe you get no sleep, you know, <laughs> but it's all, it's, it's a good time. And it's a good, uh, I had a great time down there. It's a good selection process. Um, and yeah, if anyone uh, is interested in some more information about just kind of that whole journey or pathway, I'd be more than more than happy to talk about it. Awesome, man. So 
let's talk about the wildland, uh, the firefighting a little bit. So, yeah, that like you you told you got you called the guy. You said you know I'll be there. Um, then you get you get told that you have to be at this training. Um, and you say you can't you can be there for the first two weeks, but then you you have to take six weeks off. So this isn't like uh like when I think of a firefighter, I think of like a volunteer firefighter. Like this is you're hired for a job, right? Like you're not. This isn't a volunteer gig, right? No, no. This is yeah. So like um. So regular firefighters, municipal firefighters, city firefighters, they're the guys who put on the suits and the oxygen tanks, you know, and they save cats and they save babies and they go into the buildings and all that. Real firefighters, right? <laughs> so we have a joke about them being like real firefighters. You know, they get all the water and all that. Wildland firefighters. So, yeah, we like hike up a mountain to get to the fire and then we fight it with chainsaws and hand tools. Um, <laughs> so, but – it's it's a great job. I actually uh, I really highly suggest it for um, veterans for guys you know getting out and transitioning out of the military. Uh, that's actually our crew is all is all military veterans, and it's uh, really such like an amazing community and amazing place. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard. It's seasonal. Most most of the guys who do it are seasonal employees, so they'll come out. They'll do it for six months. Typically, fire season is six months. It's from May to October for the most part, you know, give or take a month, depending on the crew. And then, you know, with the other half of the year, they might have another job. They might use their money from fire season to go travel the world. You get a really, like, interesting mix of personalities. A lot of really, like, adventurous, kind of independent, free-spirit guys doing wildland fire. Um, And then if you do, you know, well in your first year or two, you can get a permanent position, depending on the crew and there's there's different types of wildland firefighters so i'm on a hand crew which is like you think about it as like the infantry of like wildland fire when you go out you fight the fire with chainsaws and hand tools and you're digging line you know digging into the earth and then there's uh there's engines so those are the guys driving the the vehicles around they have water you know different types and capabilities there's uh hell attack so those are guys who are both flying and servicing helicopters, which are dropping water or supplies out to the crews. Um, there's hotshot crews, which are, they're like, uh, they're like hand crews, but they have, they have some more qualifications. So they actually um, basically respond faster and uh, they, they can do a little bit, do a little bit more. I'd say they're like the Ranger regiment of fire. And then you have um, smoke jumpers those are like special forces of fire. Like those are the guys who get qualified to go up in a plane and then they jump out of it and they like parachute into very low access areas. Uh, and then they go and fight the fire. They're usually a lot more independent. Um, and they're, they're, yeah, they're badass. One of my friends actually a smoke jumper and he's, he's got some, he's got a crazy story about his first jump. A, a guy's shoot almost didn't deploy. So he didn't think he was going to have to go. And then they basically kicked him out and then he landed there's grizzly bears on the landing zone because they're in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, it's those guys are those guys are awesome. And uh, holy shit! Now, other than their other than their chainsaws and you know the tools that they are they are they carrying any weapons? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I've actually heard uh, some of the crews out in Alaska that they'll jump with um, like a high caliber pistol or like a, a shotgun. Uh, just for like bear deterrence. Um, yeah, because it's the yeah, other, no joke out there. 
Dang. And are they they are they mostly military guys also? It's it's a mix. I mean, our crew is unique because it's a, it's a veteran crew. But uh, I I think the composition as a whole of wild and firefighters they're mostly civilians. Um, I will say that I think uh, I think people coming from a wildland fire background have a very high probability of success. Uh, depending on the personality type, they they might you know if they like authority or not. I think they do well in the military because honestly there was times um, in my special forces training where I would remember and look to some of my experiences from my first fire season as being like, Hey, like not even, not even the Marine Corps. I'd be like, Hey, you had, you had that one day in fire, which was nuts, you know, physically. And like, you can do this, you know, you can do this all day. So it's, uh, and sometimes that surprises people when I say that, that some of the physically most challenging times of my life have actually been from like wildland fire, not even from any of my military experiences. Well, when you like, when you do any research about the dangerous jobs in America, like I, one of the number one dangerous jobs in America is like logging, you know, oh, cutting yeah. trees down. And then yeah. you're not only doing that, but you're also yeah. fighting fucking fires as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, that's the, one of the most dangerous things for wild and firefighters is, is hazard trees or dangerous trees. You know, those things are no joke. Um, and cause they're, so think about like regular trees called green trees, trees that are healthy, or even if they're dead, you know, that's a certain problem set. And now add to that, you know, a tree that's been weakened by fire or has all these other kind of like trees around it. Someone's got to go in and basically cut that tree or get rid of it. So it's not a hazard to the other firefighters, you know, who are working in around it or transiting that area. So, you know, the, the complexity of some of those trees is, you know, extreme and, um, you know, seeing, uh, the skill of some of like, you know, either the, prof- the professional fellers or, you know, some of the wildland firefighters who have higher qualifications, you know, the way they get after that stuff is, is super impressive. Dude, like, how do you, when you get up in the morning, how do you find the motivation to, like, you, like, we at the video that we showed in the beginning of the, the podcast here, yeah. like, you always have a smile on your face, like, and you, you've been through some of the craziest shit that we've ever talked about on this podcast. Like, <laughs> like what is your motivation, man? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I really, really enjoy uh, like hardship and finding new ways to challenge myself. Um, I, so much so that like, sometimes it's, it's probably a, a problem uh, <laughs> in terms of like, uh, you know, just like my personal life, because uh, I've, I've found that when I accomplish something, my mind immediately is like, okay, well, what's the next thing? Like, what's the next hardest thing or what's another hard thing I can do. And I think there's a lot of merit in that because it's, you know, it's not resting on your laurels. And um, I think you have to have that characteristic in a lot of the communities I'm involved in, uh, especially wildland firefighting and, you know, special forces, uh, you know, because there's, there's definitely been moments where I, um, you call it like imposter syndrome you know, you're around so many excellent people, so many motivated people and so many, you know, incredible people. Like I can't tell you how many 
of these people I'm surrounded with just in various aspects of my life. You know, sometimes you have these moments where you're like, Oh, they're going to find out. They're going to find out that like, I'm not as smart or strong or talented or so it's like, I gotta, I gotta keep figuring out ways to, to make sure, you know, I'm not the weak link or I'm not, you know, that I'm good enough to be here kind of thing. So, um, there, uh, there are things you can challenge yourself with that are not, uh, you know, a risk to your life. Like maybe learn a language or something. <laughs> you are, you're absolutely right. And you know, I, I think when my, uh, when my body breaks down enough, I'm really going to have to look into more of those, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I do completely agree. And, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because, um, I've been digging into that stuff a lot more recently and, and in the sense of, um, just within like my own mind and really examining how I approach situations and why I approach them the way I do. So kind of like, and the, and the first time I realized that, that, uh, you know, some of the hardest things that I could do were really like in my own mind was, was a huge breakthrough and very, um, very satisfying for me. Uh, so now that's actually, that is a huge part of my life as well. Like while I do undertake a lot of these, these physical challenges, I'm finding that the mental challenges are the ones are the most rewarding and challenging. Um, and so I'm really enjoying that journey as well. So you mentioned war horse. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I mentioned the motivation thing, because you're, you're motivating people now also since, uh, 2020. You founded Warhorse Athletics, a coaching community committed to the physical and mentally preparing tactical athletes for the rigors of their profession. So is this is this only, you know, military, police, firefighters, or are civilians also allowed to join? Yeah, civilians are absolutely uh, allowed to join. Um, I have a lot of clients who are civilians, and they just um, – yeah, they just, they want to challenge themselves. They want to become better versions of themselves. You know, there's, I have a lot of athletes who compete in strongman. Um, and then I have, I would say just, you know, regular people, quote unquote, regular people who are, they're not regular. They're, they're incredible. Uh, who just, you know, they want to train in a very intense way or they, or usually what it actually involves, evolves into is they actually have some pretty intense goals that maybe, uh, were just like a possibility in their mind at first. And then they start training and th those things kind of come out. They're like, actually, I, I think I want to do this. So um, that's been really satisfying to see a lot of my athletes achieve uh, some of these things. So that's, that's really cool for me. And uh, I love, love helping people. I especially um, love helping people, uh, police, fire, military, because for me, I really feel like I'm giving back to the communities I, I care so much about. Um, like if I'm able to enable someone to be you know, a more in shape law enforcement officer or wildland firefighter, you know, or military member, uh, I feel like that effect compounds and this, the scope of that extends just beyond me and that person. It goes into like, you know, professions where people's lives are depending on each other. So for me, it's incredibly important that those people take, you know, their physical and their mental health seriously so they can, you know, at any job that you sign a contract saying, you know, I'm, I'm now in charge of the public safety or the safety of my brothers and sisters. Like that's, 
you don't get to be selfish anymore. I'm sorry. Like you, you, you signed that away when you joined that job. Like your, your responsibility is so much greater than yourself now. So you owe it to all those people around you and all those people who depend on you to, to really do everything you can um, to prepare yourself for, you know, those, those, those worst days, you know, I hope they don't come, but um, when they do, I want people to be ready. Sure. That's awesome, man. So you started this, this was 2020. You started this company during COVID. It did. So what was that like? It was. And, and for everyone that like, it's not an actually, you don't actually have a physical gym where people can come, right? It's all an online. That's right. Community, right? It's all remote. Yeah. And uh, it it was funny because I actually started it just before COVID started getting really serious. And then, uh, a lot of the content that I was producing was just kind of stuff that I thought was cool. And it was a lot of like ways to train and exercise without having a gym or any of these things. And then COVID happened and it, it, in my opinion, like as as small as it is, it kind of like blew up because people are now seeing like, Oh, what Harry's talking about is valid because you know, you don't need a weight room to train or there's all these other options. And then uh, because of the remote nature of it, it means, you know, you don't have to work with me one-on-one, you know, I can kind of just give you your programming and your ideas for stuff. So um, yeah, it, it doesn't feel good to say like, but yeah, COVID was good for, for Warhorse. You know what I mean? Um, and well, yeah, like, because everything went, that's, that's how this podcast got started out of COVID. Yeah. COVID you know, like that's we awesome. didn't have anything else to do. We were like, I, I had people to interview from a, from a pre- previous podcast that fell apart because yeah. of because of COVID. Um, so that's how this got started. Uh, yeah, that, it's crazy, man. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, I'm glad uh, you know <laughs> yours evolved into what it did because you know otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't have met each other. So sometimes bad things become good things, you know. Right. Yeah. So so like talk talk a little more about Warhorse. Is it is it different for every single, like, do you have a different, uh, like regimen or whatever you call it for every single person? Or is it like the same basic it's, stuff it's, for-, for everyone? It's, it's, uh, so it's customized. So it means, uh, I get in contact with an athlete and then, you know, I send out basically like a, it's a consultation form and it's got 20 you something know, questions on there just like various information I need. And then I get that. We talk some more, but it's, yeah, it's completely different to every person's goals or you know, current capabilities. You know, they're um, the appeal. Why a lot of people come to me is because they have, uh, you know, they have hard uh, training conditions, you know, either they're deployed or they've got a job like wildland fire, you know, they don't have a stable place they can train, you know, it's always changing um, and because of my experiences. I understand that. And, you know, I know how to uh, facilitate something for them where they can continue to make progress despite very challenging conditions with sleep, with training, with nutrition, like all these things. Um, So yeah, fully, fully individualized for each person. And then within those areas, I mean, obviously like a pre fire season progression, um, you know, from client to client, it's going to look more similar than like a pretty strongman uh, competition, um, you know, workup or like 
what I have for a law enforcement officer, you know, and, and even within those jobs, there's a ton of variation. Like I've got some law enforcement guys who are their, their correctional officers. So for them, it's a lot, uh, it's really important to be, um, like big, strong, explosive, but also look physically intimidating because sure. it's, it's almost similar to, uh, in a sense, what you'd want to train for as like a bouncer because yeah, while it's very important for me to be like a proficient fighter and, and physically dominant, like if I can look a certain way and people not want to cause problems just because I look a certain way, like that's great. Like the idea is we want to avoid conflict altogether. And if it does happen, we're going to make sure you're the one who's on top kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, but that consideration, for example, like completely different for a wild than firefighter, you know, mm-hmm. like, that guy doesn't want to be huge because hiking up those mountains, it, you know, for me, like when I show up a little heavier, you know, like muscular, uh, you know, it hurts a little bit for the first few weeks till I drop some weight. So, you know, there's different considerations for everyone. Um, you know, and everyone, it's someone who says like, Oh yeah, the tactical community gets like a cookie cutter thing. It's like, no, cause there's so many different considerations within the, the tactical jobs. So, um, it is really important that I do that, that, you know, sit down with people and kind of get those specific uh, life conditions, whatever they are. I kind of like that corrections officer thing. Cause it reminded me of your elephant story where you're teaching them to throw the ears up. Sure enough. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. There was this, we used to watch uh, live PD every uh, Friday and Saturday night when I was on and I forget where he was from, but there was this one like, just giant cop. Like yeah. his arms were just like huge. And it's like, yeah. if anyone is dumb enough to fuck with that guy, just based on his looks alone, like <laughs> they're yeah. an idiot. You know? I, I don't think Ronnie Coleman had like a single uh, case of violence against him when he was a cop because people just saw him showing up. They're like, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have a few more questions here. What got you into the strongman stuff then? like the competitions and stuff like that, like, and getting like yoked. Yeah. So, um, in terms of like the, some of the movements themselves, when I was in high school, uh, he's still got an Instagram page now. He's a really good coach. His name is Zach Evanesh. And when I was just kind of like looking at ways I wanted to train, he had a lot of really cool stuff, uh, about, you know, how to train like old school strength athletes and, and, you know, stuff that, uh, you could like do outside and stuff with odd objects, like, you know, uh, like kegs and like ropes and sandbags before they had like companies, which made like nice strongman sandbags. There's, you know, people made their own with like a military duffel bag and whatever. So I started reading about a bunch of that and it was just, it was like hardcore training, which really appealed to me. Um, and then I found out that it had really good carryover for like some of the tactical stuff. Uh, so I always kind of tried to incorporate some of that stuff really since like the end of high school. Um, and then when I was in Hawaii, cause I was stationed in Hawaii, uh, I had done, I had done powerlifting for a little bit. I wasn't really good at it. <laughs> I was pretty bad at it actually. Uh, and this gym in uh, Honolulu called Mana Barbell, if anyone's ever on Oahu, go check them out. They're awesome. I I went by, you know, I'd lifted there a few times. Um, and I asked the owner of the gym because there was like a fit expo going on. I was like, hey, do you guys have any more 
spots in the powerlifting competition. And he said, uh, no, actually we just got filled up, but there's some openings in the strongman that you should look at. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I've never competed before, you know, I've done some stuff, but you know, I, I don't really know what to do. And he said, uh, yeah, that's fine. Every Sunday there's like a group that gets together here at Mono Barbell, the strongman group. He's like, you should stop by and just kind of, you know, you know, pick their brains and see what you can do. So <clears throat> I stopped by on Sunday and uh, some of the largest and the nicest people I've ever met <laughs> were all there training. Uh, they're all my friends like to this day. And I started training with them uh, and I was – so they go to pretty. They go to this competition in Oregon every year called Oregon Feats of Strength, and they're like, "Yeah, Harry, you should you should compete with us. You know, come do it." Um, and so I was I was gearing up for that competition, and then our deployment got shifted like a month earlier, so I wasn't able to make it. But you know, I kept training strongman while I was deployed. Whatever, I got back, and then uh, I finally did go with that group. Um. At first, I was going to enter as an amateur, and then they said, "You know, Harry, you're too you're too strong to <laughs> compete as an amateur. Like you have to compete in the open." Which to me, I was I was nervous because I was like, "Oh, yeah. I'm going to get my ass kicked." But uh, but I won, and uh, I qualified for nationals, like my first competition, which like then spurred me to compete like like a madman because I wanted to get experience so I could show up and not make like a fool out of myself, but. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I started competing. And um, oh, so, what I have to stop you. What is the difference between powerlifting and strongman? Like, is is a powerlifter? Are they only lifting like barbells and weights? Yes. Yeah. So, powerlift consists of three movements, um, and in sequential order of the way they do it at the competition, it's always squat, bench, deadlift, and they get. Uh, three attempts on each lift uh, to lift the most amount of weight. Um, and there's weight classes and all this good stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a cool sport. I think, you know, there's, there's phenomenally um, strong athletes who do it. I wasn't that great at it <laughs> for whatever reason. It just seemed uh, like moving weird stuff around uh, out better for me. Uh, I think it's cause I, I had like a, a decent athletic background with rugby. Um, and I just, uh, I've, I've like really have some good aggression and intensity, which seems to translate, um, pretty well into some of the strongman stuff, but yeah, strongman is every competition is different. And there's like, literally you could do probably hundreds of different variations of, uh, of a lot of the events. So for me, like the variety is amazing. Um, for me, powerlifting, it was just like a little too repetitive and, uh, you know, I I had grown up watching like those old World Strongest Man reruns wow. on ESPN, which like are Magnus, Magnus for Magnuson yeah. or whatever. yeah, Jan Paul Sigmarsson, Bill Kazmaier, Magnus for Magnuson, like all those guys. You know, they were and it was cool because like that era of strong, they're like wrestlers. You know, in terms of the yeah. person, they're so over the top and um, and so yeah, and I actually just did a competition actually back in Tallahassee and uh, Brett Fain, who who ran the Tallahassee Stones of Strength, he put it on and there was a car flip 
So I got to flip a car. Like, where else? <laughs> Anyone can go to a damn gym and, and bench. You know, who gets to go flip a car, you know, ever? <laughs> yeah, I was pissed. I, I, I smoke a lot of weed, and, like, it was the end of the day, and I was like, fuck, I missed Harry at the damn <laughs> proof. No, it's okay, but- the weed stuff's good. It helps you relax. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another thing I wanted to get into. Uh, that's my last question. Um, but for these these strongman things, do they do they do any testing for like strong uh, steroids or performing performing enhancing drugs or anything like that for the strongman stuff? Strongman strongman does not. Um, powerlifting does. They have tested and untested federations. But uh, no, strongman on the uh, amateur level or professional level does not do any testing for anabolics. Because I, I'm, this isn't like a steroid or anything. But I saw in a, one of your videos you you like sniffed something. Oh yeah, that's uh, it's called ammonia. It's like smelling salts. Like you oh, okay, know, some of the um, like medics will carry around. They have those little capsules. It's the same thing. So it's if someone. So in that sense, it's used. They'll they'll crush it and they'll put it in the person's nose. And it wakes them up. Um, it's the same thing with the the smelling salts, the ammonia. It's basically a uh, it's it like excites your nervous system essentially. So it's an external source you can use, and you'll basically I actually have a bottle right here. It's not, <laughs> but basically, yeah, you'll see people. And they'll take it, and if it's if it's fresh, you can actually be like this far away, and they'll hit you. And if you know, some people are really hardcore, and they'll put their whole nose in it. Um, it'll yeah, it'll make your eyes water, and it gives you like a boost of adrenaline, really wakes you up. Um, use it sparingly, you know what I mean? Don't uh, don't use it for like dumbbell curls at the gym. <laughs> I'm gonna try that at work tomorrow. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You'll be you'll be juiced for about thirty seconds, and you have to hit it again. <laughs> so, what was the uh, what was the the glue stuff that you were that your buddy came over and you you were putting on before the the rock lift, the stones? Yeah, that stuff's uh, it's called uh, tacky. It's uh, I think I think the way they probably had it when they first started using this stuff was like like pine tar or pine tacky, but now it's like. Uh, um, not sure exactly what's in the formula, but it's it's an adhesive that you put like on your hands and your forearms, and what it helps to do is basically get more grip on the stone because the limiting factor on those stones, it's not like how much you can delve or whatever. It's like your ability to produce crushing force into the stone to help retain grip on it. So it's it's pretty uh, important for that. So I, I don't really use it when I train. I actually try to train without it to get to develop that strength to crush in. But then on competitions, um, I will use it. It makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Awesome, man. So yeah, the last question for, from me is uh, like, how do you feel about the mushroom, like microdosing mushrooms and uh, marijuana use for military and like? Uh, police personnel for for the ptsd stuff i think it's amazing um i think it's just uh i think for too long like military communities fire communities police communities and just because of the way like things were established and legalized in america i think those communities used alcohol to um unfortunately deal with a lot of stuff and the way i like to put it is like when have you ever heard a doctor prescribing alcohol. 
ever. You know what I mean? But like you look at all this research now about, you know, marijuana or THC or psychedelics, you know, mushrooms and kind of the positive effects they can have. And they're tremendous, you know, with PTSD, you know, with anxiety, with any of these things. So, um, I think it's an amazing tool for first responders and, uh, in military. And, you know, I'm really happy to see, um, you know, legislation is, is being passed, uh, especially, you know, there's a lot of stuff, um, being authorized right now for like, uh, special operations, veterans of PTSD, like MDMA therapy, psilocybin therapy, just psilocybin is what's in mushrooms. Um, yeah. And I just think it's, uh, I just think it's an amazing tool and I, I'm really happy to see um, more acceptance and knowledge about it. Cause I think for so long there's just been, you know, an incorrect stigma about the type of people who use them or what they're using them for. Um, and that being said, uh, you know, doing it in an educated way or, or an assisted therapy way with like a professional is, you know, it's very important um, education first and foremost uh, for any of that stuff. Cause there's definitely it, just like alcohol, there's, there's a good way to do it and there's a bad way to do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so educating. Yeah. There's so much information out there now where, I mean, like anyone who thinks that it, it's a negative thing anymore, like is, you yeah. know, they're just, they're fooling themselves, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's still, it surprises me cause I, you know, I have conversations and there definitely are still some like, uh, stigmas about it oh absolutely dude i smoke weed every day i I know all about it yeah there you go and you know if people you know have these like preconceived notions in their mind about like what that means about you but like that's that's yeah yeah like i still have friends like like people that i've known since i was a child like but they're older older people who've you know never consumed cannabis and like they still will when they when they are talking about me like like Casey said, they'll still like they'll still go, oh, you know, like uh, uh, like uh, I had the best time ever. It's like we just had an hour, an hour and a half conversation. In yeah. fairness, you do sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I thought of something else here before I hand it over to Ray for our, our last segment. Any any political future for for no. Harry Walker? No, I don't. I, there's nothing in the cards right now, and uh, yeah, I mean, I would have to hire like a really good publicist to cover up all the stuff I've done in my life. <laughs> I ever wanted to do that. I don't think. I think I burned my bridges to politics a long time ago. <laughs> so uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe you know after everything's all said and done, if I can get you know a good team on my side, but no, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, we have uh, we have a last segment here. We call it Real Questions. Okay. It's uh, it's a question that Ray, unless you have anything else, Ray, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, I'm ready. Uh, let's let's do the real question. All right. So this is a question that Ray is going to ask you, and you have one minute to answer it. Oh wow! Okay. Okay. In the video we watched of you in the strongman competition, you have a kilt on. Is that because you like the way the air flows underneath it? So, short answer, yes, of course. You know, a lot of the time I compete in these jorts, and I'm not going to lie to you, pretty uh, pretty restrictive, not a lot of good, like, airflow going on there. But thankfully, with the kilt, you know, I decided to change it up and, uh, you know, let uh, let things breathe a little bit more. So, 
uh, yeah, I appreciate that. It's good that the people know that, you know, for quality, quality airflow, just compete in the kill. You'll you'll never want to go back. (laughs) Awesome, man. So that's something I completely skipped on and I forgot about it in my notes. Why, what, what is, what is the deal with the jorts? Oh, uh, so yeah, that's a good question. So (laughs) for me, um, I am a big believer just kind of in, uh, like the personas and like the strength and just the character of like the eighties. Like, you know, I grew up on a lot of those movies and like those personas and, uh, the fashion, like I have this, this, this term, this expression, I call it eighties big. And because if you look at some of like the best and most like ridiculous athletes in the eighties, they wore like the most absurd clothing, like bright, you know, like skin tight, whatever. And no one could say anything because they were like the biggest, strongest characters in the room. So I really try. I'm trying to live up to that ideal. Uh, and I'm trying to get 80s big, you know, just so because I know it looks ridiculous. You know, I'm under no illusions that I'm fashion <laughs> forward. Like, I know I don't look good. I look dumb, but that's OK. Um, and, it, you know, I just I competed in them one time and, you know, I I I just liked the way it felt and I got some good feedback. So I just kept it rolling, you know. So yeah, it's yeah. awesome, man. I I yeah. love it. I love the '80s big, and I know that you're a Ric Flair fan because I saw all of your hashtags on your one post. The <laughs> jet fly. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Kiss yeah, dealing, actually, wheeling, dealing. We one of my rug. Actually, the shirt that I'm I'm wearing. One of the rugby teams that I uh, played on. We would do a little Ric Flair chant before uh, we would go out there and you know hit some bodies. So you know it's, it stuck with me. Awesome, man. I love it, man. Yeah. You, your, your enthusiasm, uh, just behind anything that you do is just, uh, incredible, man. I wish that today's generation would try and find some hardships for themselves because it's, it's not something that kids are looking to do. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is really important. And, um, yeah, that's, that is, I, I can't speak enough to, the benefits that, you know, just doing hard things is, is going to do for you in your life. Uh, and just the way it also makes you care about other people. Um, because honestly, I, you know, if, out of all these things that I've done, the thing that I've learned is when you're in these really difficult times and situations with other people, you really form some amazing bonds. Uh, you know, and you become very attached. You want to take care of those people. And uh, I think it's a great way to not only build your character, but also, um, you know, just humanize yourself and, and learn to be really empathetic and uh, look to, to take care of each other, which I think, uh, you know, we all need to do a little bit more of, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. I love it, man. Thank you so much, dude. P- uh, yeah. Please pl- plug away where people can find you. Yeah. So you can uh, follow uh, Warhorse on Instagram and it'll be war underscore horse underscore athletics. Um, you can also uh, find me, my personal page on Instagram. It's at HJD Walker. Um, and yeah, those are the best ways to, to get in touch. And if you have any questions about anything I've talked about today, or you want to get some training going through Warhorse, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to answer you uh, or help you out within reason. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much, man. This was, uh, this was, this was yeah. a blast, man. This was a fun one. 
yeah, I had a great time. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate your time. You know, thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's, uh, it's yeah, thank you, man. We, we appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much.